Hi, I'm Sangeeta Chavla and welcome to the In Conversation podcast of CFA UK, where we bring you insights, interests and issues in the investment profession. Today's episode is driving diversity and inclusion of black professionals in the asset management industry. Our guest today is Gavin Lewis, Managing Director at BlackRock. He's the head of UK local government pension schemes, and more recently, an active proponent of inclusion and diversity for black professionals in the asset management industry, which is currently dominated by 72% male executives at the top. His social media movement to encourage people to talk about racism through hashtags I am and talk about black has a huge following. Welcome, Gavin, to our In Conversation podcast. Hi, Sangeeta. Thank you for having me. Okay, so to begin with, let me ask you about your personal journey and challenges that you have so successfully overcome in reaching this pivotal point in your career. Sure, happy to. I, it's an interesting question because I think when, when people talk about their career uh, and their journey, they will typically focus on the usual story, which is that I graduated and then I had my first job in X company uh, or Y firm. Uh, for me, I feel the story has to start earlier um, because when I look at the challenges that I have faced and the challenges that other black professionals face, it's hard to disconnect these from the context in which they arrive in the industry or make their way to the industry. Um, then I think there's just, there's just a societal element or story to this as well. So my... Um, my experience um, in industry has been, I was working up three three different journeys. Um, but before I get to that, just to set the scene. So I grew up in Tottenham in North London, which is um, and certainly was when I was there, a very deprived part of London. Um, my mum was uh, as part of the Windrush generation of West Indians who came over um, in the 1950s and 60s. And we grew up in a single parent household, just me, my mum and my sister um, on a council estate. And I think the first, the first thing that I would say is that for me, that was that was difficult. So it was um, a very alpha male in, environment, a, a tough place to, um, to grow up. Just a disclaimer here, that's just my experience. Other people tell you about, you know, a similar upbringing or similar environment in which they grew up and they would have a very, very different experience. So... This is just my my experience, um, and I think that when, when I think about what my daughters and the branches that they have now, one of the key things which was missing was this just aspiration or even knowledge that you could, you know, forge a career, you know, have a job, earn money. Um, it was just an alien concept simply because it was never discussed. It was never an option. So the options that were presented, well, there weren't really options presented, but the people that you identify with typically were sports people or people in the music industry. And that was seen as the, that was seen as the route. So um, there was just, a, I guess, a void in terms of knowing the direction which you could, which you could go. I was good at sport never never good enough to make it in professionally, but um the strange thing is that it helped me hide behind. Um, so being being good at sport enabled me to be 
um, academic, I was a bit geeky, and I hid behind sport, um, essentially just to uh, ensure that I didn't stand out too much. It was difficult. I was, you know, very, very tall, skinny, glasses, so I, I always stood out. Um, but I think what, what sport enabled me to do is kind of fit in a bit more um, uh, whilst I secretly studied. And I owe my mum a huge amount of gratitude because she put herself through university and became a nurse. And that's it. Um, she was an amazing role model for me. Uh, so I did do well academically. Um, but again, I think I just chose the subjects that I was good at as opposed to knowing if I chose this subject it could lead to this career. Uh, got good A-levels, I graduated, um, good university. But I, I think I didn't really understand um, the whole like, career, you know, how to establish a career. So, you know, when I, when I graduated, I thought that if I just get a 2-1 and get good grades, it would be enough for me to get um, a good job. Um, but I remember when I turned up to interviews um, at, you know, in financial institutions, you know, the, the conversation was always about, okay, you've got good grades, um, but how well-rounded are you? Because some of the people that we are seeing have you know, been to Africa and built wells and schools and all you've done is work at a supermarket. Um, so you're missing, you're missing something. So for me, I had to take a, the long way around, which was um, probably the first leg of my career journey, which was in, um, in recruitment. It was, it was never the plan, but I think a few months into looking for a job, I started to get a bit panicky. Um, the recruiters said, you know, we're, we're struggling to get you something, but we really like you. Why don't you come and work for us? So I thought, okay, maybe it would be a bridge to working in finance. Um, and actually I stayed in recruitment for five or six, five or six years. And it was never, um, certainly never, never a bad experience that I met my wife from the recruitment firm that I worked at and it equipped me with very, very, very good sales skills. So um, I owe that industry uh, a lot, but I did, know and um, feel that I could do more. And I ended up, interestingly, recruiting salespeople into um, asset management firms and thought to myself, I could probably do that job. Um, so yeah, after about five or six years, I, I left the industry and basically tried to find myself a, um, a role in asset management. The problem that I had is that obviously I didn't have any experience. I had sales experience. Uh, I, I recruited people into asset management, but I never worked for an asset manager uh, myself. And that was difficult, a difficult period because I was, um, I just bought flats, which is an amazing achievement, but I didn't have much in the bank and I just quit a job and, you know, six months have passed and I had, didn't have anything. Uh, it was my wife that kept me, that kept me going. Um, but I do you know, look back on that period and think it was, that was certainly um, pivotal because, you know, it allowed me, allowed me to transition to the industry. So I actually found a job in a startup capital uh, productions firm, um, which is my first role in the, um, in the asset management industry. And it was a startup and it was, it was great experience. And I think it's probably why I would call the second leg of my journey, which was just making my way. Um, I have to be honest, I don't really, you know, I think when you, when I entered the industry and in union recruitment, you know that you're um, very often the only black person in the room. I was always very conscious of my, of my background. Uh, when I went to university, actually the university I went to, Queen Mary was, was very diverse. I have to say, 
from people from all walks of life. Um, but I did notice that certainly my subjects, um, which was history, uh, but there weren't many black people. And as I started to progress in industry, there were, well, none or fewer and fewer. Um, so I think you always understand that you that you stand out. And um, I guess my my process of, of, of coping was to adapt. So, you know, the industry was never going to adapt to me. Uh, certainly not at that point. It was up to me to adapt to it. Uh, and I think that's that's okay because it allows you to function, it allows you to to cope. But I do think it stops you from you know realizing your potential simply because you can't be yourself. So but I'm six foot, you know, two, six foot three. Um, you know, when I walk into a room, people notice me, but I do find myself making myself physically smaller. Um, so not to come across as intimidating uh, or aggressive. Um, I um, try to be the most you know, polished, well-dressed person in the room to you know, demonstrate that I um, you know, deserve to be there. Uh, and simply because any deviation from that I found has been picked up and magnified. Um, so my experience that were as, as other people can get away with not being that, if I was ever not that, then suddenly it became a huge issue. Um, and I, I think, th and I was very much, very much aware of this, but at that point, what can you do about it? Because you really are, you know, you really are a minority. And, and this discussion hadn't really happened. Uh, I think that did start to change, however, with, um, have to be honest here, the gender movement. So I think the gender movement really opened up the dialogue around um, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Uh, I have to say that um, you know, as a person of, of colour, I do think it benefited uh, white women more than it did black women. And as a black male, certainly there's been no male movement. So, you know, you, you had no voice. And I remember sitting in meetings and hearing discussions around for example, talent and shortlisted, and because it had, you know, 50% or more women, you know, there were pro proclamations about how diverse this is and how excellent this is. And I would look at that shortlist and think, there isn't a single person of color, <laughs> Asian nor black. Um, so how can we possibly call this diverse? Um, and I remember like lamenting to my wife about this, seeing awards ceremonies and people saying, you know, patting themselves on the back for, you know, excellence and diversity. I said to my wife, you know, this is this is a fallacy because you know there's not even a person of color. Um, uh, you know, even in any of the pictures that these firms are celebrating. And she said, Well, fortunately, you're one of the most senior people in the industry by this point. Um, and you need to do something about it because no one else will. So at that point, round about that point, I was asked to join the diversity project. Um and co-lead the ethnicity work stream and um that kicked off the whole talk about black uh, movement which you mentioned at the top um sangeeta before we get into that and maybe it's just you know, i would say the third leg of my of my journey therefore has been um almost you know announced into the industry that you know i am a black person not hiding it in plain sight if that's the right if that's the right term uh, explaining that um you know, it is challenging being a black person in the industry and 
almost just lifting the lid on the whole topic. And that's been very cathartic. Uh, but more importantly, it's, I feel, given me, or I have at least a platform to help other people because I don't think it should be as difficult as it was for me. So between, you know, the startup firm and where I am now, I always felt I had to work harder, achieve more, um, you know, leave firms probably earlier than I would have to get the next step because it was just, it was just never going to happen. I wasn't seen as a leader um, or even when I was, it wasn't on terms that I, you know, it was almost, you know, you, you know, should be grateful for what you have. It just did not feel right to me. So it, and I don't think it should be that difficult. I really, really, really don't think it should be that difficult. So I now advocate for change, but not just industry change, but societal change. And the key thing is just trying to make that path easier for others. Excellent. Very, very impressive, Gavin. I think it's really also about breaking the silence, right? There is something which people haven't been talking about. Everybody knows it's there, but nobody has been really talking about it. I think you've given it voice and definitely it's going to get somewhere very soon, hopefully. Now, uh, my next question is, uh, you know, the business case for having more diverse teams is well accepted across the industry. Now, the next step, so we don't need any convincing on that, but the next step is really to take action. And that is by setting goals and how to get there. What would your suggestions be to our members who are listening in, who are mostly from the asset management industry? Sure. So I think it's interesting, just a couple of points first and foremost. So I I was probably at the point, just maybe just six months ago, where I I also felt that, you know, the time for talking is over, we need action. And that, that is absolutely the case. Um, but unfortunately, the case for diversity, the business case for diversity, I, I don't think it's penetrated everyone's, you know, psyche. I... I still think there are um, either, you know, vocal or silent, um, or there is vocal or silent resistance to to diversity. And I actually changed my my view on this, which is that yes, we need action, but I still think a lot of people need convincing um, about this. Uh, on the on the second point around, you know, what do we what do we do about it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the most this is the most challenging challenging part. So I absolutely agree with your point around um, goals. So, you know, we are the industry is outcome orientated. It understands achieving a target, and quite simply, I mean, I think we as an industry need to set a benchmark for what diversity and inclusion looks like. And one of the challenges is that there isn't one. So, one of the challenges. So how do we quantify it? How do we quantify it? That's really the challenge. It is, it is, and um, I think you know the various way, you know ways to think about this. So one of the one of the views is you know Sir John Parker obviously produces report around board diversity and obviously had this ambition ambition of one by twenty um, twenty one, and it was recently announced that in the FTSE one hundred actually there were now none. So we've actually gone backwards um, over a six year over a six year period, and we absolutely so first and foremost yes you know, I think it needs to be quantified and it needs to be a numer you know, numerate target. I, I think so, because 
and you know people disagree with that but i just don't understand how you achieve something without knowing what the objective is so the second problem however is you know the board you know i think we've started um setting targets at the board level but you know one of the problems is that you know people at boards typically come from the c-suite and we haven't set targets objectives for the c-suite and the people at the c-suite come from the c-suite minus one and two and we haven't set objectives there either where we've started really is as an industry really is at the graduate level and you know firms that are really proud about themselves for boosting their graduate intake um so i i, I guess you know probably need to think about how we actually set objectives at all stages of the pipeline and career progression. So it's really a combination of bottom-up and top-down, you would say. I Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, but the, the other problem is, is one of, of retention. So, you know, it's, okay, if we, if we had a, and we haven't done this, by the way, but I think if the industry had set a 20-year time frame for, yeah. you know, X number of, you know, black professionals at the C-suite, then that graduate intake would make sense. Yes. But they haven't. What the industry has mm. done is just hide graduates. And the problem with that is that, um, you know, we talk about, and we'll come on to this, I'm sure, about, for example, the ethnicity pay gap. You know, I heard, I don't remember, I can't, you know, claim this phrase, so um, credit to whoever did say it, but there's also the ethnicity stay gap, which I, which I agree with. So I'm a prime example where, you know, I probably have had to leave firms after maybe a shorter tenure to, to progress. Um, so I think why you know why do black professionals leave firms and, and it's getting to the point now actually where black professionals are leaving the industry and I see plenty of really talented you know black professionals who just say you know what technology or startup or fintech or, or just gives me I can just be myself that's the first thing they say is that, oh I can breathe and the interesting thing is that you know I have a you know a wide network of black professionals and the discussions amongst even the senior people are not, you know, how do we get to the C-suite? The discussions are actually, should, should we go or should I go and set up my own firm? That, that, that's, that's the discussion. So I think we, I think the industry is kind of sleepwalking into thinking that these piecemeal um, solutions are going to resolve a problem. Which yeah, so that's, that's not very, very encouraging that people actually at some point feel frustrated and are looking for an exit route. So that brings me to my next question is like, according to you, what are the, uh, what is the main impediment, whether it is tangible, which you touched upon pay gap or intangible, which is really more important culture and environment that really is affecting uh, firstly acquiring, then progressing and then retaining black talent. I think those, that's a big challenge. Right, and I would say that that's probably the, the key challenge because you know, you can get people into the industry, but then how do you how do you keep them and how do you attract them? So, and, and this is really about the lived experience that you know black professionals have in the workplace. And um, like, how do you how do you create a culture of um, of real inclusion and real real diversity? I think, and you know, there were there were mechanical things and then there were cultural things. So, you know, I, I you know I've met with many CEOs and, and senior leaders, and I've got. I don't question their intent and motivations actually for taking this issue seriously. I do actually, believe, you know, they believe it's the right thing to do. It's right for their business. They want to do it. They want to make the change. <clears throat> but they, that seems to get diluted the further you go down in the industry. And there's just, obviously there's this layer of people, leaders, and managers because it's typically, 
you know, there's a disconnect between what the statements that firms make and then the lived experience of those black professionals. And I think that's the key thing is how do you, how do you change the lived experience of those, of those black professionals? Now, some of that I think needs to be as in mechanical. So whether, whether we like it or not, we just simply need, you know, we should attack it as any other business problem. So, you know, if there's a gap in the, in the ability of the, of the workforce, what do you do? Well, you, you know, you look at the problem holistically, you find out what the issues are and you tackle them one by one. And that needs to be things such as, yeah, right, training. Um, you know, people kind of, you know, thumb their nose at things such as training because a bit like, well, that doesn't make a difference. But it's probably because it's only been, it's firms rolled out training and expected to make a difference. It can't be done in isolation. But yeah, training, um, opening up discussion, having the, you know, people confronting issues that they have faced or, um, or have themselves. I think, I, think it, I think it's an important step. The other, however, is really trying to understand and get under the skin of that daily lived experience. And I think that is the trickier piece because it is so today, though today, it could be just in a meeting feeling comfortable. How do you articulate that? How do you quantify <clears throat> that to use your, your term? So that is a challenging thing. So uh, that's honestly, really soft skills as well. A lot of it is soft skills training. It is, it is. Um, and it's understanding like, you know, when you felt uncomfortable, why? Tell me why. I think when you do start to dig under the surface, you know, you know, it does, it does start to, you do start to get an idea of what these individuals are facing and, and what they, um, what they are going through. The, 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 the third piece I think really is about culture and uh, that is the most difficult thing to change as we, as we know. Uh, I, I think that culture needs to be about the way that colleagues treat one another, but also what, and this is where you can have more control, I think, is what firms and businesses stand for. So, you know, what is your purpose? What is your mission? And I think, you know, that you have seen you know, this, this change in terms of the societal responsibility that firms feel they now have. And there's a whole, you know, stream of people in firms who really, really believe in this, but I've never been able to express it or never thought that the industry was a place where they could express it. I think sustainability and climate change has really... Um, you know, again, kind of shaken that that belief that actually firms operate in a vacuum and have no wider responsibility. So why should that not be extended to things such as inequality or, or equity, be it racial, class, um, regional, or, or any other? Um, I think it's a natural progression from where we are. Absolutely. So that that's my next question. I was just wondering, with with an increasing focus on ESG. Uh, let's say the S, has that focus uh, helped better integration of black professionals into their work environments because of the increasing focus on ESG now? I feel it's too early to say. Um, I, you're absolutely right. There has been an increased focus on the S before ESG, you could argue, was basically EG. Because the S yeah. you never got a never got a mention. It, you know, all three need to have equal weighting. I think the E has really um, been overweighting people's discussions around these these concerns. The S, I think, yes. I mean, I think you know, the, the couple of catalysts to um, focusing on the S, and you know, May twenty twenty, the um, the killing of George Floyd really was a wake up call to many people about you know racial inequity, uh, but also just the COVID pandemic and the disproportionate impact it's had on 
you know, poor, you know, deprived communities, um, and particularly poor, deprived communities of colour. Um, but also things like working practices and conditions of, you know, employers um, has really made people think about the, the S. Uh, it still feels like it's very early in that um, in that dialogue. So, you know, you think about the E and what it means. I mean, we've got, you know, it's like it's legislative. It's discussed at, you know, forums, um, like global forums. It's, uh, you know, it's one of the key, you know, pillars of presidential and, you know, you know, you know, state leaders, they you know they have a you know on a green ticket is what they get. Um mm. you know, you can't ignore it now. I don't think we're seeing that when it comes to social equality. So think about you know what asset managers do in terms of you know the products they launch and how they align their businesses. Sustainability really is a key driver. You know, call it what you want, the S or inequality or social equity is not isn't it's simply not yet. I do think it can be, um, and I do think, and I strongly believe it it, sh- it should be, and I do think we are starting to see that change. I do think we are seeing firms starting to really like, dig down and understand, okay, what does the S mean to us? It, it seems to be it, it has started maybe in the same way that sustainability started as, you know, personal passions of, of a few people, um, and maybe, you know, it's the beginning of... Um, of a change where it becomes less philanthropic uh, and less charitable, much in the same way that sustainability was, and starts to move it starts to move into the mainstream where we actually hold ourselves to account, and where we launch products or initiatives if that's the right way to reduce inequality. Um, but uh, you know, the other way to think about this, I think, is is as a risk. So we now view climate change as a risk. You know, also, the uh, investors demand it, isn't it? The investors demand all these changes now, so that helps as well, doesn't it? Yeah, so I think I think you you know, it's one of the catalysts for change, and I think you know there are a few things to that. So, firstly, it could be imposed by the regulator. For example, they could say you now need to take account of these concerns, be those you know environmental or, or societal. You can have, and you have to see this. You have some very passionate. You know, C-suite leaders who really do believe in this, who drive change, and there are some clear examples of of that. Um, but interesting for that wholesale change, yeah, I really do think it comes from investors, yes, because you know that's who we serve, um, and you know they have this huge amount of power to wield. You know, they, you know, a few you know, leading investors really push the industry about climate change. I think we probably need to see that for the social um, discussions as, as well. I mean, that's the whole thing about stewardship, right? The investors are driving change within corporates, and it is not just their right, but their responsibility to do that as well. Yeah, correct, correct. That brings me to my last uh, question, Gavin, is I was, uh, what would you suggest are the key support areas within an organization um, is it mentoring? Is it something else which is going to really help uh, black professionals to feel more valued and integrated within the industry? Again, I think I think there isn't a you know one answer to this. I think it's a culmination of things. Uh, I think look before if I interviewed for a firm, you know, even a few years ago, I would never 
I never, it never felt appropriate to say or ask, you know, what are your, what are you doing around diversity and inclusion? You know, what, you know, I'm a black fish, what will my experience be here? Um, mm-hmm. I think that's now changing. I think you should be allowed. You, you, I certainly would, and I know other black professionals do the do the same when approached. Um, so I do think that firms need to, to like, be able to articulate their views around this. Is the first the first thing. Then they actually need to live live it. And for black professionals, I think it's knowing that the firm is really behind you know, these ideas of diversity and inclusion and specifically talking about black professionals for black professionals uh, and be able to evidence it. <clears throat> I think they need to um, be talked about um, mentoring. Yeah, I'd be afforded the same opportunities that other demographics have been afforded. So this that might be mentoring, um, that's absolutely part of it. I would also say sponsorship is, is probably critical here because sponsorship is where, you know, if you have the buying from senior leadership, or people more senior than you, I should say. Um, you know, those are the people that can help you make your your careers. Um, I think understanding, yes, this cultural piece as well. So, you know, how do we, you know, what, you know, can firms articulate their culture around this? I'm not sure many, they can articulate their culture, but remember that culture has been defined by a very narrow demographic. And then firms are really, really proud of their culture. They say our culture is the best, and, you know, it's, it's a, but if you're a black professional, it hasn't been defined by black people. So that culture can be an, the antithesis to what you want to live. So that culture needs to be able to flex and change. And as I said at the beginning of the, the podcast, being able to, you know, firms have never adapted to me. Um, and that is, is challenging. So understanding how that culture flexes towards, you know, the minority groups in the organization is, uh, is critical. That's very interesting because, you know, when organizations hire, they look at people who fit into the culture, but they never really think about changing the culture, depending on who they are hiring and how to actually be flexible around it. That's very interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the issues that, that, that we have here is that because, you know, firms are so in tune with their own culture, if anyone you know, goes against it or is perceived to go against it, then there's this organ rejection. And that person's told, well, you know, they don't fit here. They are the problem. Without actually understanding that maybe there's a, an issue with the, with the culture. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think what we're seeing now actually is, you know, the hiring of, you know, black professionals. So who would have thunk it suddenly we're, we're you know, we're, we're at a premium. But I think one of the problems is that, um, you, know, you hire, you know, diverse talent now, but we don't manage it. So what happens is you say, right, well, I need to hire someone who is diverse, quote, unquote, and that might be a black person. And then we bring them in and then we say, well, now you have to adapt to our culture, which is not, mm. you know, well disposed to you being a black person who's had a different lived experience. So, you, know, it, that, what, you know, it kind of begs the question. It should why, be a combination why, of the it, two. It, it should, it should. And I, yeah, and I, you know, and it's a good, it's a good point because I don't think that firms you know, the culture is what's, what has made those firms successful, but this is a question about where you go from here. And yeah. the world is changing, the workforce is changing, and that culture needs to flex. I, you need to just fine-tune it, really. Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, as a black, certainly as a black professional, um, you know, people, people ask me, you know, more junior people ask me, so 
you know, it's okay for you, you figured it out. Um, but, you know, I have to challenge and say, I'm not sure I have. I think what all I've learned to do is adapt more. And as a consequence, I've probably lost more of myself than you have. That's not a good compromise. So yes, we as black professionals need to make sure that we adapt to the culture. But I think the culture also needs to flex towards us as well. Excellent. Thank you, Gavin, for your time and for highlighting such important issues um, in this in a Inclusion and Diversity podcast. Thank you very much for your time. And I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you very much. Details of our next episode are available in the regular CFA UK newsletter, or uh, you can subscribe to the CFA UK SoundCloud channel and also visit www.cfauk.org slash podcast. Thank you all for listening in.